there's also the fact that uh, Clifford, the the Clifford movie, has been sort of mysteriously pulled from, Wait, really? from everything. I okay. I will yeah. say. I guess I kind of have like a hot take on this. I didn't really mind like the way the dog looked in the in the trailer. Yeah. I didn't think it was that bad. I also like. It took me a little while to realize that the dad was Jack Whitehall because I think of him as just being like twelve years old. I guess in my head. I disagree, Gary. I disagree, Gary. Welcome back to Pulp Friction. It's a show about what divides us. I'm your hostess with the mostest. You could call me Rocky. And today I'm joined by a very special guest. Uh, you know her from Twitter. Simone, how's it hey, going? <laughs> it's Simone. I'm me. I'm here. I'm excited to talk about things. Um, things are, I guess, as good as they can be in this constant limbo hellscape we live in. So, you know. Yeah. Definitely. We, we have an exciting topic this week, but first... <laughs> Uh, you just heard the sound of the Pulp Friction news horn, which means that uh, we have a little bit of breaking news to get to before we get into our topic here. Uh, first of all, you've, you've, you've heard the stories, I'm sure. The celebs are at it again. <laughs> they sure are. I, I Okay, so the stinky celeb thing, I feel like what it must be is, because I know the thing about like you're not supposed to wash your hair every single day because it like gets rid of some of like the natural oils and make it shiny. I feel like they must have gotten some advice from their dermatologist that was like, don't necessarily wash your skin every day because it can dry it out. But like, they just took it way too far. But I, I, I guess I just don't know how this works because um, to, if I may be honest and vulnerable on the podcast, I'm kind of a sweaty little guy. And so I shower sure. pretty frequently because I can like feel the sweat on my skin. So I, do they just not sweat? I don't know, because because I would think, especially like while they're working. Yeah. I don't know, maybe maybe like mid pandemic, they're not they're yeah. not sweating as much. But the the thing started with uh, Kristen Bell and Dax Shepard on, I guess Ashton Kutcher's podcast. Uh, that was it, right? Yeah, Kutcher and and Mila yeah. Kunis. They were talking about how how with their kids, they don't bathe them very often, and uh, Kutcher and Kunis were sort of uh, on the same page oh, about no, no. it. I think it was um, Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis started off the thing by saying that they weren't washing their kids, and then Kristen Bell and Dax Shepard said in a separate thing after that, being like, "Yeah, well, we kind of agree with them." Mm-hmm. As if memory serves, I believe. I, I've been watching this unfold on Twitter for like the past week or so. Yeah, so it looks like it, Kutcher and Kunis did start it. They started it on Dax Shepard's podcast and then Dax Shepard and Kristen Bell weighed in later. <laughs> so that's what happened. And then Jake Gyllenhaal, I'm not sure if it was uh, separate. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, like because I think what happened was he was, he was talking about his bathing ritual and i think it's gotten taken out of context a little oh. bit because from the from the bit i read it seemed like he does bathe okay. he just like he, he just does it in like a in like a spiritual sense rather than rather than a cleaning sense okay um 
Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to find some, a little, a little more there. Let's see. So that means he like just goes ham at Lush and just buys all the bath bombs he can. That's how he cleanses himself spiritually. I guess so. Yeah, I guess that's, that, that's <laughs> what he has to say about it. And there were a couple of celebrities who came out as, as pro bathing as well. <laughs> you had, uh, you had uh, Chris Evans and Dwayne Johnson oh. were the two that I saw who were like, I bathed so much. Thank God. I, <laughs> I don't have very strong feelings about Dwayne The Rock Johnson, but if I found out that Chris Evans was stinky, I would be pretty upset. He just, he's so like clean cut that I feel like it would like ruin that a little bit. And also like, I love him because he and Jenny Slate had that whole like crazy on and off, like almost like Elizabeth Taylor and, oh God, who was that guy? She was constant, Richard, I don't remember his last name. Uh, Burton. Richard Burton, almost like the Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton thing. And I was like, I love that because I love Jenny Slate. And if I found out that Chris Evans was stinky, I'd be like, Jenny Slate, what are you doing? Definitely. Why are you dating a stinky man? (laughs) Right, yeah. It's good to hear that. Dwayne Johnson went on a whole thing about, he described how he, he bathes three times a day. And a guy responded to that being like, Oh, yeah. being like, well, well, you know, that's that, that's weird or whatever. And then he like like replied to that tweet. It was a it was it was not he, it was not a quote tweet. It was a screenshot that the first guy did. Did not name the rock at all. The rock still found that tweet and said, "Look, man, I work out in the mornings. I work twelve hour shifts. I have to bathe three times a day. It's not weird." <laughs> and like, man, to to be dunked on by the rock like that just just from downtown it it it, it, it you know you you, you kind of hate to see it yeah it i will say though like the rock seemed like very polite when he was responding to this guy who called his like bathing habits weird he was like no 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 it's not weird i'll explain right. it and it does make sense because like i assume the rock is a guy who works out a lot yeah. and you don't want to just be like sitting in your own like sweat and stuff after you work out I, I will say though the one thing, thing that like stuck with me and I guess I like have this feeling about Kristen Bell and Dax Shepard in general is they're like constantly talking about this really personal stuff in their parenting journeys and I kind of understand why they're doing that because you want other parents to know like this stuff is normal but like I think they I can't remember like what this was but it was like something equally embarrassing is to saying that like your kid is like six years old and still wearing diapers or something but like the level to which they share about their children to me feels like it borders on like, this is embarrassing for your child. Yeah. And this is like sharing stuff that shouldn't be shared with the public. And I'm, oh, I, I am not a parent myself, but I do take care of children very often. And if I were to go around like telling the classmates of the kids that I take care of, like, oh, this kid like ripped a fart in front of me one time or something, that'd be really embarrassed. And it, I guess this is like part of a conversation that this podcast is not about, about like how celebrities treat their children in the public eye. But it does bother me when you take stories that I guess are that like, I guess typically embarrassing and you like share them with the public. Like it's one thing to be like, oh, when one time my kid was like a baby, it did something embarrassing. But like if your kid is like seven years old and wetting the bed and you say on your podcast with millions of viewers that your kid still wets the bed, your kid is going to get made fun of for being a bedwetter for like the rest of its earthly life. Like, I, I don't get that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's definitely, it's the sort of thing where I think the, I, I think it's more true of parents who like, 
make sort of social media around their kids rather than like 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 parenting specific stuff but there's definitely a lot of you know sort of forcing yeah. your kids into into things that they might not be comfortable with it's yeah my favorite my favorite thing though is when um i, I know gwen Paltrow's. i guess this is her oldest daughter apple mm-hmm. um that she posted a picture of her daughter on her instagram and her daughter commented on the instagram being like mom we've talked about this i don't want you posting pictures of me like her daughter commented this publicly and then Gwyneth Paltrow was like lol and she took it down and like i just find that whole interaction really funny but also i do like that i guess that they're seemingly at a point where the daughter can say I'm not comfortable with being on your social media and that her mom will listen to her I I guess like the I guess I feel less strongly about like celebrities sharing pictures of their kids that are kind of like you know their kids aren't their main work more than I do but like the creepiness of like family vloggers and stuff like that creeps me out like it like the kind of like um thing of like pranking my kids every day or like we live in our van for a week like that's creepy as fuck there was i think there was one guy who actually got like exposed for child abuse because of like the level to which he was like treating his children in this way and the one thing that i guess like makes me concerned for these kids is like once you get to a certain age you can obviously like say to your parent i'm not comfortable with you posting pictures of me or i'm not comfortable with you telling other people this thing that happened like my mom takes um a lot of pictures of me and a lot of them are not pictures that i want her to post Mm -hmm. but she keeps them because you know she's a mom and she's a photographer and she wants them on her ipad or something so we just like reach a point of like okay you can keep the photos just don't post them anywhere but I'm an adult and even before I was an adult, I could have that conversation with my mother. And so I guess my concern is, is like posting stuff like that about your child before they're old enough to say, mom or dad, I don't want you to do this. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a consent issue as many things are. Um, and I think it's something that mm-hmm. the, the, has just not been addressed in any, <laughs> in any meaningful way right now. It's just something that's kind of growing out of control. Uh, speaking of growing out of control, one more thing before we start. Uh, I'm sure those of you, th- those of you listening, have seen the hubbub around the forthcoming live-action Clifford the Big Red Dog movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was a great segue. <laughs> the, you know the uh, trailer ignited some controversy about how Clifford maybe looks too fake or looks too much like a real dog or is too small or there have been a lot of, (laughs) you know, uh, nitpicking about the design of Clifford. Uh, That movie has been uh, pulled unceremoniously from Paramount's release schedule. Uh, It was planning to be released in September. It now does not have a release date. Uh, It was also set to premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival. It was pulled from that too. Uh, (laughs) The the most recent news is that... it, you know, I think I think Paramount put out a statement or deadline, got some kind of scoop that it was uh, pulled from the release calendar due to concerns about the Delta variant. Whether or not those are true, oh, okay. I don't know. Because uh, <laughs> part of me does feel like, I mean, it's true that like 
few movies are breaking even right now. Like, like, like it's, you know, mm-hmm. n- numbers are down. It makes sense that looking at the fall schedule, the most recent Venom trailer didn't have a release date on it. There's definitely uh, mm-hmm. a, a little bit. And I think it's going to be like the way things are going. It's going to be like that for a while where people go out more when cases are down and then they go out less when cases are up and it sucks, but that's yeah. likely how it is. Um um, I will I will say about like the Clifford, I guess about the Clifford thing, if they did actually pull it because of the criticism that people were like having against it on social media. First of all, I did not mind the Clifford the Big Red Dog trailer. I thought it was pretty cute, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like people kind of in some ways like took away the wrong lesson from what happened with Sonic because the original trailer from Sonic everyone reacted to him was like what the hell's going on you have to reanimate Sonic and they did it and the new I still I need to really need to watch it but like the the Sonic that they reanimated did look a lot better and I know that the movie was supposed to be really good but like my concern is that this is going to be like a trend of like people not liking how a certain character like just something in a movie is animated and so then all of a sudden these animators have to work under these like insane crunch deadlines to fix it to like appease the public and that really worries me because I feel like that's just going to result in like animators being overworked and like treated poorly and stuff. I I feel like with the Sonic thing it was kind of understandable because Sonic did look just that's not how Sonic should look but like mm-hmm. I guess I, I, I don't know I just I guess I feel like I have a worry that like what what happens with crunch in video games is going to start happening more and more with other segments of entertainment I mean it obviously was probably happening already but like that people are going to be listening to the public to the extent where like they're constantly redoing stuff that didn't necessarily need to be redone Mm -hmm. or because like they had like a bad review of a project that okay i don't fully know what's happening with james snyder or any of like the suicide zach snyder but like that i wait okay there's two guys there's there's one there's two guys who did the Suicide Squad and I can't there's Zack Snyder and the oh Suicide Squad is uh, David David Ayer and James Gunn okay cool that's that's what I was thinking of of sure. James Gunn is like I cannot keep any of these directors straight mm-hmm. um, I guess like my feeling is as some of the stuff that happened with the Suicide Squad of like oh well the cut that got released in movie theaters isn't actually the cut that I wanted I. I, I feel like I'm like a little bit side eyeing that. I don't know what to, I don't know what to make of it. I guess. There, I mean, in the case of Suicide Squad, there was a you know a pretty public uh, like, like like it's pretty well known that they handed the movie over to the people that cut the trailer to make an edit mm-hmm. of the movie, and then like the studio kind of cobbled together the two versions to make what came out. Um, do I think that David Ayer like his version of Suicide Squad would be good? Probably not. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I, I think even with the new Suicide Squad that just came out, I, you know, I think there's definitely an element of like Warner Brothers adopting the strategy where if if a movie, as, you know, in this in this uh, superhero mega franchise age where if a movie makes under a billion dollars, it's it's not successful. I think it's kind of Warner Brothers has decided to do this this sort of clever thing of, you know, making some kind of do over movie. <laughs> that you know because the first one made its money and they can afford to put more money into it but also to appease the fans they can say this is the real one the previous one doesn't count mm. 
Okay, I will say there is one thing that I did want to ask you about that I guess fits into like the pop culture things that I don't know what's happening with that. What the hell is happening with Kanye? I don't know. Speaking of delays, yeah, this was going to be a, a Donda episode. This is the, the the second time that that we've planned for a Donda episode and it hasn't happened. Um, so Kanye has been delaying. I mean, most of Kanye's albums have been delayed to a certain extent, but the, you know, in the past couple of years, he's really been... Um, I mean, the first one was The Life of Pablo, where it was going to come out and he did a listening party and then he was like, I'm going to retool this. It ended up coming out, I think, a couple weeks later in February after he performed on SNL and it came out a couple days after that, actually. And people were worried because Martin Shkreli was trolling people saying that he had bought the album and then it didn't come out for like three days. Uh, But then he also, like after The Life of Pablo was released, changed it like went in like 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 updated the album into different versions on like iTunes and Spotify just you know kept changing it for a couple months that year and then um there were a couple other albums uh you know we'll cover this in depth whenever Donda actually comes out but there was uh TurboGrafx-16 was going to come out that year uh Yandi was going to come out in 2018 there's been this long chain over the past couple years of Kanye starting albums with Yandi he like had a release date and then he cut it off. I think with TurboGrafx-16, he also was building towards something and then he had some kind of breakdown and was in, was in, uh, was inpatient for, uh, for, for a couple weeks. And then um, with Donda, it's an album that uh, was originally supposed to come out last year, uh, got delayed probably because Kanye's, uh, Kanye's quote unquote presidential campaign fell through. Um, and, and, you know, he, he took some time off to let the PR cycle reset. And, uh, now that he did a listening party on July 24th and then he, you know, he didn't say, he hasn't said a word, but someone else said Mm -hmm. that they were going back and it was going to be August uh, 6th now. And then he did another listening party this weekend. And thus far it's been nothing. People have been paying attention to, there's a pre-order thing on iTunes. There's, you know, a single has appeared on that uh, for the second track. And, you know, it seems like it might be getting uploaded. People are saying that, that he's, you know, still hold up retooling it, but no one knows when it's actually going to come out. <laughs> the only thing that I've really known about the what's happening with Kanye is those pictures of him wandering around the stadium with like the stocking on his head and like that little room he's staying in. And I, I do have to say, I have really enjoyed all of the Phantom of the Opera jokes being made about Kanye. It's so good. <laughs> because with the very little that I know about Kanye, that honestly seems like, a, a, a character evolution that makes sense for him is to become the Phantom of the Opera. It's a really good bit. There, you know, there are a lot of stuff in the sec in the in the second live stream. There's a there's you know a moment where he's like he's got like a cloak over him and he's like running around in a circle. It's really good. He, um, I mean, he obviously. <laughs> He obviously like floats up like through the through the ceiling at the end of, of that one. <laughs> it's you know, there's a lot he's doing a lot of interesting stuff visually. And the album sounds good. I'm looking forward to it. I just, you know, it's kind of fucking with my schedule here. Um, I mean my birthday is in a week, so if it comes out uh around then, that'll be that'll be fun. Uh we've probably been talking for like half an hour already, but uh <laughs> the topic of this episode is in the heights. Uh, the film. Yes. We'll probably talk about the show. Um, yeah, I don't know. Simone, tell us a little bit about you and In the Heights. So 
I really, really love In the Heights. I listen, I've listened to the original Broadway cast recording a bunch of times. I have, in recent years, I guess, enjoyed it more than Hamilton, kind of because I guess I started like, I, I still think the music in Hamilton is really good, but I guess I was like, I am not crazy about all of the founding fathers-ness in Hamilton. Mm. So I'm gonna listen to this other fun musical that's just like about a neighborhood instead. Mm-hmm. And I, first of all, I really enjoyed the movie. I have a bunch of really positive things to say. I have some less positive things to say, but the one thing that I will say like right out of the gate that I loved about the In the Heights musical is that one of the things that I guess I felt was like lacking with movie musicals in recent years is that to me, musicals are a genre that thrive in an escape from reality. Mm-hmm. And In the Heights kind of really embraced a lot of that kind of sense of like magical realism and really embraced that sense of like, this is something a little bit outside of our reality. It's still happening within it because like lots of the plot lines in the movie are about things that are happening to people now, but that like, to me, I guess it, it felt like, you know, it was, it felt like a movie musical that really loved that it was a musical. Like it loved being a musical and it felt like there's lots of scenes in it that I felt like were send ups to lots of things that I love from old Hollywood movie musicals. And I know Lin-Manuel Miranda is also like a big dork for like old movie musicals as well. So there lo- there's lots of stuff in there that I'm sure was like very deliberate references, but it was something that I really enjoyed and I really love Anthony Ramos. So I was super happy that he was Usnavi in the movie because um, fun fact, I do share a birthday with Anthony Ramos. Uh-huh. I'm very proud of that. And also just, I think he's like, I I just think he's got like a beautiful voice. And I love that the internet is falling in love with Anthony Ramos like I am, even though he is sadly engaged and madly in love with Jasmine Cephas Jones, which is cute as hell. They met when they were doing Hamilton together. Amazing. Adorable. I love it. Yeah, so um, I would say that my, my background within the Heights is limited. Uh, this, you know, (laughs) this film was very much the first version of it that I, that I consumed. Um, and I did, I did like the movie too. I, you know, I, I, I also have some criticisms of it. I think it's, you know, overall, uh, a delight. It was like, I think the statistics said that for like 96% of the audience, it was the first post COVID movie they saw. And like, I think, I think it's a, you know, it's a good return to the theater. It's a good uh, theater experience. So the story begins with Lin-Manuel Miranda. He wrote the earliest version of In the Heights in 1999 while he was a sophomore at Wesleyan. That version was produced by Wesleyan Student Theater Company Second Stage that same year. Uh, Norman Mailer's son, John Buffalo Mailer, was a senior at Wesleyan at the time. He uh, approached Miranda after seeing the show and invited him to get involved with a theater company that he planned to start when he graduated four years later in 2002 Miranda graduates meets Thomas Kale who is a member of John Buffalo Mailer's theater company that he started he gets involved with that and with them rewrites the show a bunch of times over the next year like five different versions uh producers come on board after watching readings Kevin McCollum uh Jill Furman you know it starts to pick up these backers through these readings over the next like two years. In 2004, Kiara uh, Alegria Hudes is brought on to uh, to write the book uh, because, you know, Le-Manuel is, is doing acting and, and, and you know, writing the songs and all that. He gets someone else to, to, to deal with the book. A new version starring Javier Munoz as Usnavi is presented at Connecticut's Eugene O'Neill Theater Center in 2005. It seems like 
I, from what I've read in the early drafts, Usnavi was not a major character. That actually kind of makes sense to me. And I guess this kind of partly has to do with the things that I thought they changed going from the musical to the movie. Um, Usnavi and Vanessa are very much the central romance of the movie in a way that they aren't necessarily in the musical. And Nina and Benny are much more the central romance, at least to me, in the musical than they are in the movie. Like Nina and Benny are kind of a backup and there's there's some stuff going on with Nina and Benny that I want to talk about later, but that I feel like isn't really important right now because we're talking about Usnavi. Yeah, it seems like Nina was was very much the lead in the early editions might have been like the character from which the whole story was built and then uh Lin-Manuel was playing Usnavi in in a lot of the readings and performances and uh was I you know I guess people were were into his performance I'm sure he was into his performance and the, the you know the character sort of <laughs> became a larger part of each subsequent uh draft producers fronted two and a half million dollars which is very generous for an off-Broadway show uh for the show to be put on at 37 R which was a theater partially owned by Kevin McCollum, one of the you know producers who came on a few years prior. And uh, the show went live on at 37 Arts in February 2007 with Miranda starring as Usnavi. That production was nominated for nine Drama Desk Awards, winning two, and the show would open on Broadway the next year. I am very sad that I never got to see it on Broadway as I was very busy being seven at the time but i have watched a bunch of stuff from bootlegs on youtube and it was a it was a really great production yeah it was the the broadway version was also a little high it, it wasn't like you know disney level budget but it was it was 10 million which is relatively high for you know first timer broadway show yada yada um mm-hmm. the original broadway cast recording of the show won a grammy uh, Miranda's performance as Usnavi scored him a Tony nomination for Best Actor in a Musical. And, you know, the the show blew up in a pretty unusual fashion. <laughs> like, uh, you, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it, obviously it resonated with people, but I think having uh, John Mailer on board early on was probably part of it. Uh, if you want to get into it, one, one could mention that uh, Lin-Manuel's father has been a Democratic Party strategist since the 80s, and he has, you know... <laughs> has a certain level of connection that probably allowed him to get a very high budget first show (laughs) yeah i there's a lot about lynn's family that i am not as up on as i'd like to be but basically that like i guess the main thing that i kind of have learned i guess not necessarily recently but like over the past few years is like i guess more of this stuff about lynn's father has come out is that lynn's family isn't exactly kind of like the um I was the first one in my family to succeed thing that I think sometimes he kind of plays up but I I do like I guess Lynn kind of always has this happened with Hamilton too obviously in a much bigger way but like his shows have always had this kind of like like instant blow up thing Mm -hmm. and I I like in I I will say I like In the Heights more than Hamilton because it feels like a story that comes from the heart because it's a story that he's telling about where he grew up. And it feels like a story that's like, cause it's about, it's about his neighborhood where he grew up and it feels like, oh, this is something that he's writing about. Not just like he picked up a history book that he thought was really interesting, but like something that like comes from a love of family and community. And I think it's just like a really great show in general, but I, I guess the, the thing that has always felt, I guess a little bit odd about, Lynn's family connections in I guess like after like finding them out and like viewing them in the context of his work is like 
yeah, of course his works aren't this huge revolutionary thing if he comes from this family that's so aggressively part of the status quo. Like, that makes sense. Yeah, it comes up more in Hamilton, but we'll talk about the politics of, of, yeah. of this one, too. Um, the Broadway production closed in 2011. Uh, different versions bounce around all over the world after that. Japan, the Philippines, Brazil. There was a significant West End production in 2016. And talk of the film actually began in November of 2008 when Variety reported that Universal had bought the rights to the show and was planning for a 2011 release. Wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> took a long time. That tends it? to happen though, is that like, um, that's been happening with like the Wicked um, movie adaptation for years now, hasn't it? It's sure. like, it was supposed to come out like years ago. So these kind of uh, movie adaptations, these really huge Broadway shows tend to take a while. So that doesn't feel terribly surprising. Yeah, well, well, let's get into it here. So to set the scene in June of 2008, uh, uh, five months prior or whatever, Universal Pictures releases Mamma Mia. It makes $600 million at the box office. It's at the time, the highest grossing movie ever directed by a woman, the highest grossing movie musical ever. Universal's first step after having this huge success before they, like years before they're even thinking about a sequel to Mamma Mia, they're like, we have to do another musical. They pick up in the Heights and they pick up Wicked. Mm -hmm. That's what they do. They, and, and you know, the, the, the Wicked, like they're kind of, they're kind of toying with it for a few years, not really until 2011 that they really pick that up. So it's really like they, Mamma Mia is a hit. Their next step is let's do In the Heights. And I, I, I think that's interesting. I mean, I love Mamma Mia so much. I'm like, I am the world's number one Mamma Mia and Mamma Mia 2 defender. I love those movies. They make me so happy. Absolutely. But I, I, I guess I, that does kind of make sense because I guess movies that are like very escapist tend to do well when you know the world is in I guess a bit more of like a dire strait and if we think about like the U.S. in like the depths of like the Great Recession around 2008 that makes sense that I guess they might feel like oh musicals that are more of this kind of like happy thing of like people can go to and escape that might do really well and that just did do really well with Mamma Mia so we might do that again with these other two shows. Yeah and I, and I think that Wicked and and In the Heights were obviously very hot button musicals in 2008 so there it was probably just like they were looking mm -hmm. at the landscape of right then and they were like what can we snatch up immediately so they they, mm -hmm. they got In the Heights right out of the gate. They did, uh, Wicked was with the producer Mark Platt and In the Heights was with Meryl Poster, who was previously an executive at Miramax. She produced Chuck a Lot, The Cider House Rules and uh, Chicago, most significantly. Uh, she's mm. She signed this first look deal with Universal and this is supposedly the first movie that she lines up with that deal. And uh, Lin-Manuel is brought on to produce, reprise his role. Uh, Hudes is attached to write the script. And in 2009, it's announced that Kenny Ortega is directing. Mm. Yeah, and Kenny Ortega is, you know, a big pull here primarily because he's known at this point as the guy who just had this tremendous success with High School Musical. That's, you know, that, that that's really the other thing that is sort of building towards In the Heights happening in 2008 is that High School Musical 3 comes mm. out at, in theaters and it makes, Hell yeah. it makes $250 million. It does like crazy numbers. So, you know, they're, they're like, if we can do a musical 
with Universal, with uh, the guy who did High School Musical, like we're we're set. Right. I mean, these are all movies that I absolutely love. I grew up on High School Musical. I love, I still love High School Musical like so much to this day. Um, I will take this moment to say justice for Sharpay. Sure, sure. She was not actually, justice for Sharpay to an extent because I unfortunately um, eat the rich. But right. also, she should have gotten those lead roles. Yeah, yeah, she she put in the she put in the time. You know, she she was yes a, a talented uh, child of wealth, a uh, a Laura Dern, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So in um, because I, I feel like the the representation angle of In the Heights is a big part of the reason that like it ultimately that that, that studios were ultimately sold on it, and the fact that at this time mm-hmm. it was just like it's the big musical, and you know we're gonna get Kenny Ortega to do it, and and you know have the whole thing, and mm-hmm. we'll get into it in a little bit. There's a little more of that uh, to come in a second, so I'll just get through these notes. In 2010, Mark Klein is announced as the new screenwriter like who wrote a draft and now this uh, and now mark klein is going to bring like fresh eyes to it he wrote uh serendipity he was signed on to mirror mirror at this time and he was working on an anna ferris ryan reynolds rom-com called tmi that never came out plans were underway to like begin filming summer 2011 on a budget of 37 million dollars uh but it was canceled the whole the whole movie was canceled by universal in march of that year really yeah miranda put out a statement that was like we're gonna shop this around elsewhere but like universal killed it oh wow yeah they were apparently wary of the risk of spending 37 million on a movie that didn't have any big names attached they wanted a bankable latino Mm -hmm. star uh reports say that they wanted either jennifer lopez or shakira to be in it oh no Oh no. Okay. Well, first of all, I Shakira maybe, but like, okay, I love JLo so much. I, I think she's an amazing performer. Okay. JLo is not the world's greatest singer. That's true. <laughs> I I will say like, I guess this is one of the things, this is the one big thing that I guess I have with the movie adaptation of Chicago is I would listen to the original Broadway cast recording with Gwen Verdon and Cheetah Rivera religiously as a kid. Mm-hmm. And when I first like watched the movie version of Chicago, I was like, these vocals are crap because they're fine. But like, if you grow up listening to like the Gwen Verdon and Cheetah Rivera versions of it, you're like, oh my God, what's, go- what's going on here? And I, I do think that like movie musicals have a tendency to like cast these big name actors who aren't necessarily the world's greatest singers like I am fearing is going to happen when West Side Story comes out with Ansel Elgort yeah. playing Tony. Yeah, I've heard Ansel Elgort's music and like Call me a thief There's been a robbery <laughs> He's not a good singer. <laughs> let's, let's just put it at that. Um, I, on the other hand, like J-Lo being from New York and yeah, you, there, there, there are ways in which I think J-Lo would have been, I mean, Mark Anthony is in the movie. Like, like, like there are, there are ways in which like, mm-hmm. I think, I think a J-Lo appearance could have worked. She obviously being, being the star, I don't think would make sense, but yeah. Yeah. 
I, I, I could see J-Lo as like one of the ladies at the salon. I could see that like really clearly in my mind's eye. I think she would have a lot of fun in that role. I can actually picture J-Lo doing that like really easily. But like at the same time though, I feel like someone like J-Lo, like it would have made the movie too much about it. Like, ooh, J-Lo's in it. When like, to me, the magic of In the Heights is that it's about the stories of this community. And it's mm-hmm. not necessarily about like this big, like the big stars of the world outside. It's about like, this whole ensemble and the stories that they're telling together. And I feel like if you have one person who's shining so much brighter than the rest, it kind of takes away from that a little bit. Yeah. And I I feel like that is one of the things we'll get into it later, but I feel like that is one of the things that takes away from the film is the, the shadow of Hamilton and of Lin-Manuel specifically Mm kind of hanging around. It feels like that, you know, the film came out past a moment where it could be about anything other than Lin-Manuel and you know yeah the, in, a, in a way all of his his works are are about him but it, it you know the, the the fact that he's he's there and he keeps appearing and he you know it's his music and it's his style <laughs> and like it's the guy who played his son in Hamilton is the lead like like, like there's so many things that, yeah it, you know it, it's hard to avoid pretty much silence after that in early 2012 Lin-Manuel was like we're talking again, something might be happening. And then it was just, it was like nothing. Uh, And then Mm -hmm. uh, in 2016, Lin-Manuel Miranda is in the news again (laughs) because he he has this (laughs) this hit show, Hamilton, that everyone's wild about. And uh, it's announced in, I think, Variety, you know, in May of that year that Harvey Weinstein has picked up the rights to In the Heights. Yeah. <laughs> no one can see this because we're recording this on a podcast, but I just made like the most aggressive disgust face that I could possibly muster up in that moment. Yeah, it, it's it, it, oh. the, the, the timing on it is is ridiculous. Harvey Weinstein picks oh. it up. He's hoping to produce it for 15 million. He, he wants to, you know, get, get it done, get like a scrappier version of it done. And supposedly that's what Lin-Manuel wanted to Um he also was very involved in the production of Chicago and he, you know, at the time talked about how he felt like this could sort of revive the movie musical in the same way that Chicago did. So, yeah, you know, there were, there were you think things were bubbling pretty quickly there and it obviously had a lot to do with Hamilton's success. They threw out Mark Klein's draft and were working off of the, the Hudes script. Um, and then just a month later, they announced that John M. Chu is going to be the director. At this point, he's mostly known for sequels. He did Step Up to the Streets. He did Now You See Me Too. He did G.I. Joe Retaliation. Uh, and he had his disastrous Gem and the Holograms movie uh, the, the year before. But um, he was also signed on to Crazy Rich Asians by this point. So it's clear that like he, he, mm-hmm. he was selling himself well. By, by this moment. And the other producers attached, they had uh, Scott Sanders, who was mostly a Broadway guy, Mara Jacobs, who had previously worked with Lin-Manuel on The Odd Life of Timothy Green. Uh, they, you know, they built up a thing. October 2017, the craziest thing happens. The New York Times publishes a shocking expose about Harvey Weinstein on October 5th. And he's fired from the Weinstein Company on October 8th. And the Weinstein Company is rumored to be up for sale on October 16th. So (laughs) everything just comes really crashing down in short order there. Yeah, now he's rotten in jail. That's right, that's right. And uh, there's some some tidbits from the the Weinstein Company 
sale. Uh, among the parties interested in acquiring the company were Sony, Viacom, MGM, Lionsgate, A&E Networks. Jay-Z was considering buying it. Uh, a lot of those negotiations fell through after it was revealed that the company had over half a billion dollars in debt. <laughs> Which is the other thing about uh about about buying in the heights wanting to do it for 15 mil is like they had accumulated a lot of debt and uh were kind of already down the tubes by the time they uh picked it up but um they had arranged a deal with like the former new york attorney general they had worked this thing out to sell it for 500 million uh this also fell through when an additional 50 million in debt was uncovered (laughs) So no sale, too much debt. They file for bankruptcy in early 2018, at which point a 394-page list of creditors, people who the Weinstein Company owed money, is unveiled. Uh, some, of the, some of the groups on this list, uh, people on this list too, the Film and Television Academies, the New York Fire Department, the LAPD, Amazon, Netflix, ABC, CBS, NBC, the American Cancer Society, Autism Speaks, and Office Depot in Cincinnati, and celebrities including Quentin Tarantino, Dame Judi Dench, Ryan Coogler, Daniel Radcliffe, Robert De Niro, Michael Bay, David Bowie, YouTuber Casey Neistat, and Malia Obama. <laughs> really got me with the Casey (laughs) I don't know why that's so funny there's so many like I it's it's, it's an extensive list but there's so many on there that it's like why do you owe them money (laughs) also the Home Depot in Cincinnati yeah it's it's an office depot (laughs) god damn I mean Okay, six hundred million dollars in debt, but they really, they were, they really owed a lot of people. I mean, again, this is a three hundred ninety-four page list. Like they, they were, you know, not paying for anything for a long time. Maybe if I check that list, they'll owe me money. Could be. I mean, you could be entitled to it's a lot of people. The thing with the thing with Malia Obama <laughs> is that she influ- infamously had interned for for the Weinstein Company right. while while Obama was in office, which is nuts. Yeah. Um, but in order to raise funds, the Weinstein Company sold some of their films to other studios. Um, they mm-hmm. they sold the Paddington franchise to Warner Brothers. They sold uh, six billion six million dollar man to Warner Brothers, uh, and Warner Brothers would also buy another uh, Weinstein property. In the Heights. It was a different thing because uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda and Chiara Alegria Jures had managed to snag the rights from the Weinstein Company in the midst of that whole collapse. They like they like yanked it out from under the rubble. Um, <laughs> and so they they had this bidding war where all the where all the studios were sort of courting them. And, uh, you know, the people who bid, it was like Fox, Paramount, Sony, Disney, Netflix, Apple and uh, Warner Brothers had constructed like a mini bodega set and like had a performance of some of, of, of a medley of songs from the show to like court uh, Miranda and John M. Chu to, uh, you know, do the film with them. And they acquired the rights for $50 million, <laughs> which is a lot. And they, and the budget that they worked out was 55 million. So they, you know, they put a lot of money into making this movie happen. 
Uh, by this time, John M. Chu had Rap Crazy Rich Asians. It was out. People were loving it. And he says that that film kind of gave him the confidence to come to the table and be like, we, we have to do a talent search. The, the people who are right for these roles are not people who are represented by agencies because there are no roles for them. You know, he, 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 he really sold Warner on that regard and allowed them to get some, some relative unknowns in the cast. He wanted it to be all unknowns, but uh, Miranda went to a performance of In the Heights at the Kennedy Center where Anthony Ramos was playing Gusnavi and was, was so enthusiastic about it that he convinced John M. Chu to cast him. I, I do really enjoy Anthony Ramos's Usnavi, but it is a very different Usnavi from the Momo Miranda's because Anthony Ramos kind of makes Usnavi like cool. Mm. And in the original, Usnavi is a huge nerd. Like the whole thing with like him not getting with Vanessa is just that he's like this like giant fucking dork who's like too afraid to ask her out. Yeah. And, like the like in the blackout scene with that audio that went like fame that would like blew up on tiktok of him being like you've been shaking your ass for half the heights linda mom miranda could never have said that that would not have worked at all <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to picture him saying that and it's oh boy yeah it's um it's kind of the feeling that I had with this movie and with Crazy Rich Asians, where it's like everyone in the cast has to be kind of supernaturally pretty and likable. Um, in a, in a, in a, I mean, it creates a certain atmosphere that I think makes both films like these very like the, the, these delightful romps like Mamma Mia. But mm-hmm. um, it, it does feel like you lose something of what Usnavi's character, like how they seem to be describing him because like, it, it's this this incredibly handsome talented dude who's playing him who's like it's like what couldn't you like about this guy yeah i will say though i guess i find that sorry what you said about like john m chu really pushing them to do open casting outside of agencies i guess is really interesting and I guess the wake of the discussion about the lack of Afro-Latino representation in In the Heights, Mm. because if he's like making this big stink about people who aren't represented by agencies, that feels like a demographic of people who are even less represented by agencies than what they actually ended up getting for the movie. So I guess that just seems like a little bit odd. Yeah, it definitely speaks to a certain unconscious bias. And I feel like, you know, if, if you look at the, like, we'll get into it. Obviously, neither of us can can speak to the issue as experts, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I I mean, the way that, the way that Lin-Manuel talks about it, the way that all the people involved talk about it, it's like, yeah, this was, this was a blind spot. This is something we failed to consider and we should have. I, I, I will say the one, like, really, I guess, disappointing thing was that interview with, I, I forget which late night talk show this is on, but this is like a late night talk show with Rita Moreno. Yeah. And she's like, oh, well, we forgot. Why are people complaining so much? And it's just like, Rita Moreno, no, what are you doing? Yeah. And like, <laughs> I get that she's like 90 years old at this point, And like, that's probably part of it. But it was just like, it was really disappointing. Mm-hmm. And I guess, I guess one of the things for me that like made, the, the one thing that like stuck out in like watching the movie is, you know, I am not a person either of Latino or Afro-Latino or anything of that kind of scent. I am a white person from New York, but I do have Afro-Latino friends. I have lots of Afro-Latino friends from In the Heights and Washington Heights really is that community in real life. Mm-hmm. And I really do, I guess, like, I guess kind of want to be like, I would like to agree with all of the things that have been said much more eloquently about this 
that this was something that they should have considered in making this movie. And it's strange that they didn't because this is supposed to be a movie about this community in particular. So why would you not want to reflect that community, I guess, in like the most real way? And yeah. I guess this is, I mean, this is one of the biggest actually criticisms that I have with the movie, not necessarily with the issue of representation, but with the issue of how they rewrote Nina and Benny's relationship. Um, in the musical, Nina and Benny, like one of the really big obstacles in their relationship is that Nina's parents, or more specifically her father, don't approve of their relationship. A, because um, Benny is has less money than they do and that it's kind of implied that Nina's, it's not implied, it's pretty clear that like Nina's family has more money than a lot of other people in the neighborhood because they run the cab company. And so there's this whole obstacle of Benny being black and not Latino. And that's why Nina's father doesn't approve of their relationship. And they kind of completely got rid of that in the musical, which I thought was just a really big missed opportunity to talk about this obstacle that is, I just thought like, this is such an interesting thing to bring into this musical and to talk about. And it's such an interesting, not an interesting, but like, it's such an important part of Nina and Benny's relationship yeah. and what they overcome to be together. Yeah. And it just felt like a missed opportunity to take that out in favor of like pumping up Usnavi and Vanessa's relationship. Yeah, it's interesting how people had very similar criticisms about Crazy Rich Asians in that it failed to address mm -hmm. like the the racial dynamics of the place it was portraying. It was just like surface level. This is a movie that represents Asians. This is a movie that represents Latinos. And um, <laughs> it, it, it seems to be a running theme with uh, with John M. Chu. We can, we can get more into it later. But I was going to say my brother also lives in the Heights and has basically said the same thing that in terms of the community and everything, like it, it's, you know, there's there's a lot of accuracy in it. Yeah, so the rest of the cast is sort of announced in early 2019. The film begins shooting in June. Like, like when Weinstein picked it up, he was like, we got to get this done as soon as possible. When Warner picked it up, it was very much the same thing of like, Hamilton's big right now. We got to ride this. Let's let's let, let's just make things happen. And so the release date was, that was announced to be June 26th, 2020. Uh, the first trailer is released in December 2019, which is just six months after shooting began. So again, they, you know, they, they really pushed this thing out. And then In the Heights was pulled from Warner's release schedule on March 24th, 2020, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, just a few weeks later, Warner announced that it would be released on June 18th, 2021. Uh, and in March of this year, it was pushed up a week for whatever reason. And uh, yeah, that's when it came out, June, June 11th, maybe June 10th. Um, but it was screened for critics in April. So it, it, it even by pandemic standards, it did kind of underperform uh, commercially. It uh, debuted in second place to A Quiet Place Part Two, which was in its second week. Uh, it had an opening weekend total of 11 and a half million. It also, its streaming numbers on HBO Max were under a million. It was third place in it in streaming for its opening weekend. Uh, it fell into sixth place at the box office after week one. It's made 43 million worldwide and estimates say it needs to make uh, 200 million to break even. As I've said, very few movies are breaking even right now. But um, interestingly, even though this movie, like, uh, you know, people are talking about it. Critics gave it a universal acclaim, basically. Um, th th this movie 
kind of didn't do very well. Yeah, I I guess like, I mean, I guess that's like kind of to be expected given like the circumstances of like the pandemic in the moment we're all like still living in. I am, I am really disappointed that like it didn't do better. But to me, I guess I always feel like music, movie musicals are really tough sell because unless you like really love musicals or you are especially within the heights like if you're part of the community that this movie is about you're probably going to go see it because there are very few stories told about latino people in hollywood so you have that motivation to go see it or you have the motivation to go see it of like you love musicals or you have both maybe um but like i watched it on hbo max with my family i have a bunch of friends who went and like saw it in the theater but like all the people i know who like took time out of their day to like specifically sit down and watch it or go out to a theater and watch it we're like we have to go see this because we love musicals Mm. which doesn't really surprise me those are always the people who are really excited to go see movie musicals the people who love musicals yeah i mean that that's it for my notes i you know we can sort of segue this into a discussion of the film itself i did see it uh, it might have been opening weekend. I think it was. I think it was Sunday. And, you know, decent decent crowd in the theater by by pandemic standards. I was also surprised, actually, to read that it, like, debuted in second place. And, like, and, like even by, like, mm-hmm. it, it, it's so hard to judge, like, how things are doing in a pandemic. But it did worse than other movies that came out under the same circumstances. Um, like, the first thing that I remember loving when I saw the movie is in the opening scene, which is the In the Heights number, um, they use kind of the noises of the neighborhood and of people waking up as percussion and as like a rhythm to start the movie. And I really enjoyed that. And I thought that like, there's a bunch of moments in the movie that really make good use of the things that film can kind of lend as a medium. And I felt like that was one of them. And I felt like, I guess I could kind of like go down and say things that I felt like were references to other things in movie musicals that I feel like kind of references Guys and Dolls and West Side Story of that thing of like the noises of the city beginning the musical. And then I think later in the movie um, with Paciencia y Fe, to me, a lot of the way that they shot that was very reminiscent of the Dream Ballet in American in Paris, which is this really beautiful, like, have you seen American in Paris? No. Okay. It, it's this like very um, like beautiful dreamlight seat with Gene Kelly. And it's like, it. I, Paciencia Ife was one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Yeah. But the other thing that I really loved was the um, scene towards the end with Nina and Benny um, when the sun goes down and they're dancing up the building. That I'm, I would be willing to bet money that that was a reference to Fred Astaire dancing on the ceiling in Royal Wedding, which uh-huh. is a really classic movie musical reference. and. I think that was one of the things that I enjoyed most about In the Heights is you can kind of tell how much of a nerd Lin-Manuel Miranda is for these old movie musicals. And that's what I grew up on. So I was really excited to see that. And I think like there's lots of scenes that they did like great stuff with like 96,000 at the public pool. Like it like reminded me of like going to the public pool in my neighborhood. And it felt like there was a lot of love for the city and scenes like that mm-hmm. and love for the kind of community that takes place in places like that. And I feel like it was one of the movie musicals that I've seen recently that really like has fun being a musical and like that really just like is like, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to be a musical. And I really liked that. Yeah, I, I would. 
I would also say that uh, Paciencia y Fe is one of my favorite scenes of the movie. I think the opening number, it, the In the Heights number, is like, like, like it's, it's the best scene in the movie. It's one of my favorite uh, musical sequences in film in recent memory. Like, it, 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 I think they really crush it on the opening and it, it, it's so delightful and it's so like, in terms of the thing I said about coming back to the theaters, it's such a, you know, it, it's such a perfect encapsulation of 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 what's great to see in a theater and um i liked the the three numbers you mentioned were also the moments in the film where the that magical realism uh framing really came into it i had kind of wished that it was used a little more throughout i feel like there you know there mm-hmm. there there's this play there's this thing they do at the end where like the 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 very first scene of the movie is Ustavi on apparently on a beach telling some kids the story of washington heights and then at the end there's a mm-hmm. fake out where it's revealed that he he's actually you know in the, in the old in the old bodega i have i guess i kind of this ties into more of like my feelings about Ustavi and Vanessa's relationship but i have to say i was like a little bit like hmm that's interesting that they did that I think it was an interesting framing device for the movie of like, oh, this is a story that Usnavi is telling because the musical, Usnavi is very much the narrator of the musical, it feels like. Like that's how the opening number feels. It feels like Usnavi is narrating the story of the neighborhood. Um, but I guess the only, I guess this is like, I think a thing that I noticed largely with Usnavi and Vanessa's relationship. And I, this is, I guess, one of the things that I took most note of. Um, Nina and Benny's main relationship obstacle is A, Nina's father not approving for class reasons, for racial reasons, um, because Nina has these big dreams she wants to go off and pursue in California. But like those are obstacles that you can see like a couple working out, like that you can see them like working past like a disapproving parent. You can see them like staying together through Nina going off to Stanford. But the thing with Usnavi and Vanessa is they both want such different things out of life. Right. Usnavi wants to like get back to where he's from and to go back to the Dominican Republic. And Vanessa wants to get like so far away from where she's come from and wants to escape the neighborhood. And one of the things in the musical that I feel like really should have stayed with Vanessa's character is one of the big reasons why Vanessa wants to leave where she lives is because she lives with her mother and she has a really unhealthy, like borderline abusive relationship with her mother and that is a very concrete reason why she wants to leave and in the movie it comes off more as that she's just like I guess unhappy with where she comes from or that she wants to go off and be a designer instead and she doesn't think she can do that in Washington Heights but in the musical there's this very concrete thing of the place that she lives is not very safe for her to live in and that makes much more sense as a motivation for her but Usnavi and Vanessa's whole thing as a whole feels like they are headed into very different places in their lives and so with the way the musical ends the way the movie ends with like them both kind of being like oh wait we're actually happy with right where we are feels like it almost feels like okay crap this movie's over we gotta wrap it up a little bit like not so much like that but the way the movie is paced, I will say, kind of gives like those last few scenes a little bit of that. We got to wrap this up feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- there's a couple things to talk about there. I think the I, I you know, Lin-Manuel, it was interesting to read. He talked about how as he was shopping this movie around in, in 2008 or 2011, whatever he, I, studios wanted there to be like 
something concrete in that in in that Vanessa narrative, like a uh, like a like a pregnancy or, or something to to explain why why she you know dropped out of school and and he was talking about how the the fact that the, like like the pressure of being the first in your family to go to school like like like, like oh the Nina the Nina thing not the Vanessa the, the thing. Nina Sorry. thing yeah the yeah it, it was interesting to read about that again I have not uh I've I've not seen or listened to the musical one of the things that I read that I thought was interesting was that the fact that Abuela bought the lottery it had the lottery ticket comes up a lot earlier mm-hmm. in the musical well Paciencia y Fe in the musical which is the number where Abuela reveals that she has the winning ticket in the musical that comes right after 96,000 where the whole neighborhood is finding out that somebody won the ticket and they're trying to figure out who it is and then it immediately cuts not immediately cuts I guess but then immediately goes right into Abuela revealing that she has the ticket and see about how she doesn't know what she's going to do with her mother's dream and I actually don't mind with them putting it during the blackout and having it be this song that Abuela is singing as she's you know as she's passing and I really, really loved what the movie did with Paciencia y Fe and yeah. how it kind of, with the dancers and the way it takes you through Abuela and her mother's journey coming to New York. And I really hope that that scene or like the actress who plays Abuela gets nominated for like a bunch of awards because that was so freaking good. Yeah. And it it makes sense to me as this kind of like, final goodbye to the to the city that she's spent her life working for but it does make it it does I mean it does obviously make it a lot sadder because she's saying it as she's dying but like that she leaves the lottery ticket to Usnavi is discovered not even after not even like right in that scene though it it, like comes like right towards the end of the movie which I feel like was just a little like there was like there were some pacing issues with when the lottery ticket thing was happening and I, I think the one thing that the movie didn't handle well is that In the Heights has a ton of different storylines because there's all these people in the neighborhood with different dreams and like it's an ensemble it's very much like a musical with a big ensemble it's a big cast and all the different characters have different dreams and I think the movie got a little bit like I guess confused in places because of that and they definitely I mean there's a lot of stuff that they cut out because of that like one of my favorite songs in the musical is this really beautiful song that Nina and Benny sing at the beginning of act two where it's right after blackout and also I should note in blackout in the musical it's Nina and Benny who have the fight not Navi and Vanessa and they have this fight because um, Nina's father has just sold the taxi company and to pay for Nina to go back college and Benny blames her and they have this huge fight but then they end up finding each other and embracing at the end of the number and this number sunrise that begins the second act is them presumably kind of waking up together on Nina's fire escape and it's this like beautiful quiet romantic moment where Nina is like teaching Benny how to say all these romantic things in Spanish and it's this beautiful beautiful number and I was really sad that they cut it because blackout is this is such an intense number and then it following it up with sunrise just like this moment of like calm and peace in this like crazy thing that's just happened but I think that's kind of you know what they did by putting Paciencia y Fe right after blackout is by like there's this crazy thing happening and then bam Abuela's dying everything stops everything slows down for this moment yeah I think the um I, I think the hand the the way that the film handles the Abuela's death is 
one of the strongest things in it. It's it's you know it's really well yes. done, and the Pazienzo number is so moving and visually cool. And they do it in the 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 subway station from Joker, and it's great. <laughs> I mean the I mean the stairs from Joker are in this movie too. Like like it's very much the yeah yeah it's the area. But um, I I mean yeah in terms of like the fact that there are a lot of plot lines in the show and in in in, in the and in, in the movie it's like they are trying to nod at everything but they can't really give significant time to everything to the extent that even the that even the benny storyline barely feels relevant for 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 most of it there's you know they they center it on mm-hmm. usnavi and i think that's a strong choice but the extent to which they are trying to like nudge towards every other plot line that's happening they try to they they try to have an arc with benny they try to you know Sonny's uh immigration status becomes a hugely important thing mm-hmm. like very late in the movie like like like, like everything yeah is sort of is sort of you know they, they try to squeeze everything in there without losing focus and I don't think they always succeed at that yeah I I, I will say the um the Sonny plot is not there in the musical which makes sense because the, the the plight of the dreamers is a much more recent issue because when the musical was on broadway this is it was pre it was pre-daca yeah okay it was pre-daca yeah so this was not even a, a consideration that could have been made yet right and i understand why they like i don't object to them putting in that plot line because i think it's a good plot line but i do think they should have done something about it earlier because it it, it becomes this huge obstacle but not this huge obstacle, but that it, it becomes this big focal point and it feels like it kind of comes in a random moment yeah. but also that Sonny's father is kind of like irresponsible and neglects his son. And like, there's all this stuff coming in with Sonny that is not there in the musical. And I don't know if that's a, Sonny in the musical is just kind of very much this like teenage activist who wants better for his neighborhood right. and who wants, um, you know that he has the whole like rap in ninety six thousand where he talks about if he won the lottery he would use it to fix the neighborhood. Right. And like that's very much what Sonny's character is in the musical. Yeah, it, it's like it's definitely something that feels like it comes uh, out of nowhere in a way. And like you know, there there's the the protest scene where where they start talking about it and it's like it, it's sort of a Chirac moment of like you know in this again like you have this magical realism thing that the rest of the movie is doing and then there's this I don't know the, the like it, it, it's just shot and presented in a way where it's like oh now we're mm-hmm. now we're in in politics land it's like the the Star Wars prequels mm-hmm. and then you know to have to have Sonny suddenly be like oh no I can't go to college they, they just sort of introduce all these things yeah late in the game i think and then speaking more uh structurally in a similar vein i noticed that like i think the the structure of the show where it's like the countdown to the blackout and then the fallout of the blackout that works in a musical because there's a clear act break and you can you can split it Mm -hmm. in two and have different narrative framings for each half in a movie you set up the expectation at the beginning that it's going to be the countdown to the blackout and then when the blackout comes there's this big emotional climax with with the abuela number but you're actually only halfway through the movie (laughs) yeah it felt like the inclusion of the dream storyline was very much like what's an issue that people outside of this community know is an issue with this community immigration so we have to put it in because this is what our 
pop culture po- political understanding is yeah. of the issues facing the it, Latino community. It feels it feels once again like a like an attempt to turn the movie into this is this is a movie about representing Latinos all caps <laughs> just just mm-hmm. whatever you could get in there have the kid marrow show up whatever and i i think um the club scene i i i know that like not everything that happens in that scene and the play happens in the movie but i mm-hmm. it felt like a, it, it felt watching the movie like something that was included because it's something people like from the show but doesn't really have any bearing over the mm-hmm. over the plot of the movie yeah the, the, i i enjoy the musical version of the club much more than i enjoyed in the movie because i feel like in a way the version of the movie isn't quite hectic enough Hmm. because like in the movie there's like two big things and in the musical there's two big things happening in the club which is um Vanessa and Usnavi are finally going out but then Usnavi is like kind of a dork and doesn't and is kind of like afraid to ask Vanessa to dance with him and Vanessa is really outgoing and all these men want to come and dance with her and so Usnavi's jealous and so there's that going on with Usnavi and Vanessa but then the really big thing that's happening in the club scene I guess like the more emotional plot line is Benny and Nina fighting because also in the musical, Nina doesn't like Nina very much like does not want her. I mean, she doesn't want him to do it in the movie either, but she does not want him to sell the taxi company like at all. And the thing of like him selling it to like this um nebulous like white guy who runs this laundry company, that laundry company does not exist in the musical, at mm-hmm. least as far as my memory serves. And I think it's meant to be like, I mean, it's meant to be like a larger commentary on gentrification in the heights, but like it feels a little bit like I mean, I guess I might feel like it's a little obvious because I grew up in a neighborhood that is very rapidly gentrifying. And so I guess I am someone who comes from a perspective where I could like kind of see like little things in the neighborhood that would signify gentrification. But maybe if you come from an area that isn't being gentrified or you don't have an understanding of what it looks like, you might need something a little bit more obvious to be like people from another area coming out and pushing out this community. Mm. I feel like a lot of the plot lines in this movie have have just in the like two months since I saw it have escaped me. I honestly kind of forgot that there, <laughs> that there were romantic subplots in this movie at all. <laughs> like, like, like the fact that that characters were developing relationships other than the one, uh, the, the one Benny and, is it Benny and, and Nina at the, near the end? Yeah. That was, yeah, yeah. That, was the, that, that was the one element of romance that I remembered from the movie. Yeah. Benny and Nina, I mean, Benny and Nina to me are much more interesting romance. I was like talking about this earlier, but Benny and Nina to me are a much more interesting romantic couple. And they kind of fall into that role of the lead couple a little bit easier because their central conflict of like they're being kind of from two different blocks of life. You know, they're from the same community, but Nina has more money and also that Benny is black, which her family doesn't approve of. It feels a bit much more like, you know, you've kind of got the classic like Romeo and Juliet thing going on a bit. And so that's I feel like a couple that is really like really easily falls into like the lead romance and also the thing with Usnavi and Vanessa is that they just like Nina and Benny have like been on and off for years and you kind of get that in the movie is like that they were together before she left for college and that they kind of like you know that there's like um high school sweethearts or something and you kind of just get this feeling with like Usnavi and Vanessa that there hasn't been something there for as long and it's less it just feels like oh well they kind of like each other and Usnavi like wants to ask her out on a date but he's kind of nervous and 
you don't really get as much motivation to care about their relationship because it feels like neither of them are all that invested in it because Vanessa has this dream of becoming a fashion designer, which is, I, I am not crazy about the Vanessa dreams of becoming a fashion designer plot. I don't think it makes a lot of sense. And I also, mm. I, <laughs> this is my own personal fetch, but the clothes that she ends up designing at the end of the movie, they're supposed to be like inspired by the neighborhood and that she makes with um, Pete's used graffiti tarps are not that cute. <laughs> yeah, they could they, they could have done, I don't know, the, the, the way that the the way that the graffiti stuff is incorporated into those looks, I feel like they could have done more. Yeah. <laughs> they, they could have made it more central. Yeah, I I just think like the Vanessa becoming a fashion designer thing, I feel like was just because they needed to give her some sort of a plot line and reason to want to leave the neighborhood and that oh she wants to go to like FIT or something and that she has to move downtown to go to fashion school which she doesn't have to move downtown to fashion school plenty of people like go to schools that are in completely different neighborhoods from the ones they live in there's no reason why she couldn't have stayed in the heights and commuted to school and the plot line of her having that relationship with that bad relationship with her mother like I was talking about earlier and musical is a much better reason for her to want to leave her neighborhood because she physically has this person who she's not safe living with right yeah yeah, I don't know. I mean, it feels like another uh, another John M. Chu ism of like, mm. like like I feel like I'm kind of I'm kind of berating the guy, but it just feels like another thing of like, well, we can't have anything, you know, too serious happening in this because it's a musical and it's supposed to be fun and everyone's having a good time. But then, um, one of the kids is about to be deported and the grandmother dies. But yeah, we can't have anything well- too serious. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I uh, even though I like some of some of Chu's movies, as I'm as I'm analyzing them, I'm starting to think he might be a hack. But uh, <laughs> who, who's to say? Who's to say? I, I have, have you seen the Gem and the Holograms movie that he did? Because I have. I have not. Yeah, I have I've... seen Crazy Rich Asians, which I feel like is his like besides In the Heights now is was like the movie that most people know for. And I like Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah. I think that like what people were saying about it at the time, which was like. It's like a cute, cheesy rom-com, but it's centrally about people who were not white. Like, yeah, that's pretty much like what it is, is it's yeah. not like something genre-defying. And I think that's fine. Representation doesn't always have to be like reinventing the wheel. Sometimes it can be the wheel, but like in a way we haven't seen the wheel before. Or like with people holding the wheel, in a way, I don't know what this wheel metaphor is going nowhere, but like, I I will say that like, it just feels like also the plot with Nina leaving college is in the musical, the reason why she leaves college is because she is working like a bunch of different jobs in order to pay her tuition. And she basically runs out of money and has to leave college because of it. In the movie, it's because someone makes like vaguely racist comments about her. And she feels like she wants to go home because she doesn't have a community there. And that is like a very valid reason to want to like transfer out of college. But you could just say, I want to transfer because I feel like I don't have a community here. It's not a reason to like leave college entirely. And (laughs) dropping out because you literally don't have enough money to pay for your tuition is a much more like immediate serious, like I have to leave college. I 
why wouldn't she just like transfer to a really good college in New York? Like, why wouldn't she just go to Columbia or NYU or something? Like, why would she go all the way to California to begin with? Uh, like, like, I I agree that she could have transferred, and it's it, it, it's something that you know that that whole conflict is underdeveloped. I don't know if I. Um, I, I, I just, just in terms of like her reasons for dropping out, it's like I I think it's it's kind of it's kind of like cheesy and and and, and mm-hmm. a movie version of of what can can easily happen to someone who mm-hmm. who leaves their community and ends up in a place where they don't feel welcome. Um, mm-hmm. I you know it's a musical. I think I, I think they address yeah. it as, as 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 much as I expected them to. I would say that that kind of ties into. An overall issue I have with the way with the messaging that this movie has just into that, that like, I think I, I think that as a musical, this is another thing I want to talk about, about how the, the evolution of things. But I think that as a musical, it was uh, it was clear that this was Lin Manuel's story and his community story. And this is about him not wanting to leave the Heights about, I mean, he grew up in Inwood, mm-hmm. but you know, same area. Or, or, or Usnavi not wanting to uh, leave the Heights, but you know, the way that it becomes, it, he he has this moral dilemma where where people and and a lot of the characters do where people are treating it like you know you're abandoning your community and they take and they take that thing and they take that input seriously and they you know ultimately decide not to leave. It's as if the film is arguing that it's immoral to leave the place you grew up. Yeah. <laughs> That was the odd thing to me is like it, you know, Usnavi has real reasons for wanting to go back to the Dominican Republic is that he feels like, you know, he wants to, even if he doesn't permanently move back, he wants to go place, go back to the place that his family came from and he wants to experience that culture for himself. And that's a really like valid thing to want to do. And that Vanessa wants to leave. I, I, I think the fashion designer plot is a bit hokey, but like that she wants to leave because she has this big dream she wants to pursue outside of her neighborhood. People do leave their neighborhoods for reasons like that, even for smaller reasons. And I think the thing that was like, lost in the musical is the original plots between Nina dropping out of college because she doesn't have enough money being changed to Nina dropping out of college because people were racist um and Vanessa moving because her mother is abusive versus Vanessa moving because she wants to go to fashion school is it kind of like it lost these stories that felt a lot more like real in favor of these like in a way like simpler narratives. And I do think that like the story of Nina facing racism at Stanford is something that's a very absolutely, that is absolutely a real thing that happens at those colleges. And that I feel like they could have talked about as part of the plot of like Nina leaving Stanford because she leaves it in the musical because it's, it's just too much that she right. has all this work she has to do and then she also has like three jobs that she's holding down outside of school and people and then it could have been like she has this and she has this and people are being racist to her like there is no reason why that plot line of Nina physically can't afford to be at college anymore should have been dropped especially because they keep the thing about her father selling the taxi company so that she can go back to school which is the whole reason why he does that in the movie right. yeah it, and the um oh what was i gonna say and even changing the usnavi plot line to make the 
lottery ticket part of twists. And actually he wants to go back because he has the opportunity to, you, you know, with his, with his father's uh, sh- store or whatever. Yeah, he, his he's, father's like old restaurant or something. Yeah. And he's, he's going to open that back up. It feels like it, it, it it, it adds an interesting tenor to that whole th- that whole narrative where it's like he wants to go there regardless. It's not just about like, oh, if I if I won the lottery, I'd go home. And then he does. It's like he has this thing that he actually wants that's there and that he just mm-hmm. doesn't do it. In the end. Yeah. Yeah. The um the restaurant plot, I have to be honest, I did completely forget about that because it is not part of Usnavi's storyline in the musical at all. That is not a thing that his father has this like abandoned restaurant in the Dominican Republic that he has to go back and reopen. And I also think that that didn't necessarily make sense. Like you can keep the plot line that he just wants to go back there because he feels isolated from his culture that he wants to go back and experience where his family came from like that is a uh, I hate like using the word valid for this because it feels like I'd be like yes you're valid sweetie but like it is a very real reason to want to go back and see that place you don't need to add oh his father has like a rundown restaurant somewhere on the island that he has to go back and open up especially because I, I, I just I don't get where that comes from Bruce Navi like he doesn't have this dream of becoming a chef like this is he is not Remy the rat this is not ratatouille like right it, this man yeah. does not cook it, 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 it's sort of contrived and it doesn't really you're always like well why but why like what's the rest of the story there why does he have the option to, to 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 buy it why does he why why didn't anyone else do it before you know there's it, it just it, it opens up so many questions it doesn't feel necessary and again when it comes to that that final thing of actually i'm staying home what happened to the 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 tangible yeah. thing that you are i i like maybe that's the idea is that it's like they wanted a physical praxis for him something that he directly wants but then he just doesn't <laughs> doesn't do it and the other thing i was thinking about is uh in terms of how this show has developed over time and how things have changed i feel like there are a lot of mixed signals about how old usnavi is supposed to be (laughs) yeah i mean in the movie he's very much like a 20 year old guy yeah but they're like you know working at the at at, at the bodega and doing you you know they're like, like being this like awkward kid who yeah like like, there are elements where he feels like a teenager and then of course anthony ramos is 29 and it it it, it seems like the sort of thing where the the fact that miranda first wrote this in 1999 and was was putting it on by like 2002 like it, it feels like the character sort of progressed in age just because miranda kept playing him and now it's just Mm -hmm. like the character of a 29 year old teenager (laughs) (laughs) um i will say the original musical as far as i know is set kind of nebulously in the 80s which makes sense because that's when limoma miranda's childhood was and so it's kind of like it's very much like a story about like the thing that he remembers from his years growing up so they do kind of like, I guess there's that kind of awkwardness of now it's set in modern times. And you can tell that because there's the issue of DACA. And also um, in 96,000, oh gosh, I forget who they changed the lyric to in the musical, but in the original- um, Tiger Woods. Oh, Tiger Woods? Yeah. 
Okay. In the original 96,000, in the in the original Broadway cast, it's Donald Trump and I on the links and he's my caddy. They changed it to Tyron Woods on the links and he's my caddy. Which makes sense that they yeah. got rid of the Trump in it. But like, yeah. it honestly would have been kind of funny if they had like <laughs> kept it as Trump and that Benny is like, that he that his flex is that like, I'm going to be so huge that I'm going to be able to like fuck with this guy. And yeah, also because it- like... Tiger Woods isn't really that well thought of. Like, people do not have, I don't really have a very, I like, I know he's a great golf player, but like, I think of him as the guy who like cheated on his wife with like 500 women. Like, yeah. And the, and the, the Trump line has a different connotation now, but I feel like it mm-hmm. would still, it's still a flex, you know, it's still, yeah. it, it still feels like it makes sense for that moment. Yeah. Especially, especially with the added, you know, the, the added racial politics and the things they're talking mm-hmm. about in the movie, like to be like Donald mm-hmm. Trump's going to be my, my golf caddy. I feel like that that's, yeah. that's a strong line. Yeah. And they, they could have like, they could have changed it to like just another billionaire. Like it could have been like Bill Gates and I on the links and he's my caddy. Like, that would have been fine. Changing it to Ty, I guess I just don't like Tiger Woods very much. Maybe but so. I do, I do love ninety six thousand in the way that like it kind of interweaves all of these different characters and like their different like things that they want in life, or just even just like their things that they're fantasizing about doing. Even like Daniela and Carla being like, "I'm gonna go to Atlantic City and I'm gonna." get my hair done like that's like such a like a little silly thing but it's like yeah. them and it's their dynamic and also I forget um what the third hair salon lady's name is because she is not a character in the musical and so I've completely forgotten about her and I know she's played by um Dasha um Polanco it's uh, uh Kuka Kuka is the character Kuka yeah Kuka is not a character in the musical at all and Daniel. Although I will say the thing that I did enjoy about the movie with Daniela and Carla is that they are much more explicitly a couple than they are in the musical. And like, you see them kind of like waking up together and like in Carnival um, del Barrio, you see like the way they like sing together is like very romantic. And like, I liked that it seemed much clearer that they were in a relationship because it's a lot subtler in the musical. And mm-hmm. I liked that they kind of let them be in a couple. And I also, I loved Stephanie Beatriz. I thought mm-hmm. she did a great job as Daniela. Yeah. I I used to really love Brooklyn Nine-Nine before I was like, I can't keep watching this because I just like, I even when I started watching it, I always felt really weird because I actually like lived down the block from an NYPD station at feels very much like what the fictional Brooklyn Nine-Nine like where it's supposed to be and so I was always like feeling a little bit weird when I was watching it but then it just like especially with there's like the scene and sorry for like off-roading on Brooklyn Nine-Nine but there's a scene in the first season of it where Rosa Stephanie Beatrice's character uses this megaphone that admits this high-pitched whistle that only like people of a certain age can hear and that same tool and it's like used as a bit in the show and that same tool was used against black lives matter protesters last year so like yeah even the things that they put in as jokes end up becoming real things that the nypd uses to enact violence yeah it's honestly it's honestly crazy how for the first like two seasons of the show rosa's whole character is that she loves police brutality (laughs) (laughs) and then they're like shit we can't do this anymore let's give her a girlfriend we got to do something to distract from all of the police brutality that she really likes doing. Yeah, I, I'm, 
I, I don't know when they're gonna like do the last season when that's coming out, but like I I feel like it's gonna be it's gonna be Hard. fun to see fun to see how they try to how they try to square that. I think the right way to do it as we're as we're doing the Brooklyn Nine Nine tangent now. I feel like the right way mm-hmm. to I don't think I don't know if they could ever do this, but the right way to end Brooklyn Nine Nine is Seinfeld style, where they have to like answer for their crimes. Actually, yeah, I'm kind of down for that because there's a lot of shit that they do on the show. Like Jake's whole shtick that he wants to be like an action movie hero is very much in line with the kind of cops who like are like, yeah, I'm going to like beat up every single person that I have to arrest. Like that's like the same exact vibe. And it's supposed to be that like Jake is this like, oh, he's just this like dork who really loves Die Hard and he wants to like be his mom's hero. But like in reality, that guy is not like a cute, nice guy. He's like, a piece of shit who beats up protesters yeah and having like like you know having paid attention as i had to watch it for my tv writing class recently Mm -hmm. uh there are a lot of crimes that they do in the show that you know if you Mm -hmm. wanted to have could be a could be a season arc could be just like a like a two-part finale or whatever just like an episode where they uh are put on trial and and you know these have to answer for their crimes (laughs) i feel like that is the right way to end the show Oh yeah, and also the thing with, um, I remember this, the, I don't know why this just popped into my head, but when Jake dates a public defender, and then there's the, the entire season is just, oh God, fucking public defenders, they're the worst. Yeah. And it's just, <laughs> no, these people, public defenders do great work, like, oh, and, and it's just like, it's this whole joke of like how bad public defenders are, but like, no, these are the good guys. Pretty upsetting, it's pretty upsetting. Getting back to In the Heights, uh, I talked earlier about the shadow that Lin-Manuel casts over this film, and uh, he he does appear in it as the as the Piraguero uh, in a, uh, you know, (laughs) like like I've 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 talked before, maybe not on the show, but I've talked before about I don't think Lin-Manuel is a very good singer or actor. Mm. Uh, I don't mind him as the Piragua guy. I think it's actually kind of like a cute scene. And I like that they had Chris Jackson come in as the Mr. Softy guy. I thought it was like a nice callback to the fact that they were Usnavi and Benny together. But like at the same time, though, it is a little bit like Lynn and Wilma Miranda is here. And the guy that played George Washington is here also. Look at this, yeah. people who like Hamilton. Yeah, it's it's, you know like it it very much feels like the idea from their perspective was to do like an easter egg just something where you know people who go see this movie are probably fans of his and you know for him to just like be there in a couple scenes is like it it feels like something that pretty early on they were like this has to happen but like It especially puts the it puts the representation conversation into a new light because it sort of shines a light on how a lot of Lin-Manuel's work is ultimately about representing himself Mm-hmm. that's the thing is like Lin-Manuel I mean not so much in and not so much with Usnavi in the Heights like if he was playing kind of like the Anthony Ramos version of Usnavi where he's this like cool hot guy and like all the care and like if he was playing that version of Usnavi this would be much more relevant but especially with the character of Hamilton the whole thing with Hamilton is that it's like it's like two hours of everyone talking about how cool and hot this guy is and he's played by Lin-Manuel Miranda and, 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 you know, it, it's just like when, when it comes to the the blind spot of, of having, you know, dark-skinned Afro-Latinos in the cast, 
on a certain level, Lin-Manuel is making this movie for people who did to see himself on screen and for people who mm-hmm. had had the same experience as him to be seen on screen. And I think I, I think that's I think the real blind spot is that he it feels in Hamilton and in this that I, I obviously a little less so in this, but that, that, you know, he's, I did, I, Hamilton is very like, like, I feel like the proper way to view Hamilton is as a vanity project. And we will probably do a Hamilton yeah. episode eventually in the Heights, maybe less so. And I, but I think that also speaks to the evolution once again, where when in the Heights premiered, no one knew who Lin-Manuel Miranda was. Yeah. And this is just a story about, people in Washington Heights and and and, and, and people were excited about that because even though it was Lin-Manuel's story or a version of the story Lin-Manuel wanted to have maybe the you know was it was something new and a representation of people who weren't represented now that mm-hmm. Lin-Manuel Miranda is is you know an A-list celebrity it, telling a story about his life where he's there and everything is like a subtle reference to his him. like to him <laughs> like, to the cult of Lynn Manuel. Yeah. It, it turns the thing into a vanity project uh in a way that it, it wasn't before. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the hard things is that be and I think that was like one of the things that made the lack of rep- I, that you just said like that made the lack of representation so noticeable is that I guess like I have a different perspective than like the ordinary person watching this musical because I was watching it mostly excited for the people that I hadn't seen in musicals before because I always love seeing new actors and new singers in projects like this because I am someone who is a big nerd for musical theater and so I was watching it much less for the Lin Manuel Miranda of it all than your average person who really only knows about musicals from like that they know who Lin-Manuel Miranda is and so if you are going to see this because you know who Lin-Manuel Miranda is the whole movie becomes about Lin-Manuel Miranda and I mean but like I wasn't going to go see it because of Lin-Manuel Miranda I was going to go see it honestly in spite of Lin-Manuel Miranda but that (laughs) is not the that is not the majority of the public's relationship to Lin and I think he is a very talented writer. I think like for all of its flaws, the songs in Hamilton are really beautiful. And I, I actually do have some thoughts about the way that they shot the um, like version of it that went up on Disney Plus. But I don't know if that this is the episode for us to talk about that. Um, but like it, it's it's still a good musical. And In the Heights is still a good musical, but it feels like Lynn's presence is not necessary. And honestly, if they had, it might've been nice if they had had Chris Jackson as Mr. Softy, even without having Lynn as the, as the Piragua guy. Because then it's still like, if you have like the original Broadway cast coming in and making little subtle like Easter eggs for people who really love the musical, that's really interesting. And like in the same way that with the West Side Story thing coming up, Rita Moreno is coming in to play Doc and everyone who has seen the original West Side Story knows Rita Moreno for being in West Side Story. And I think that's nice is like when you have little tidbits in there, like the things that I noticed when I was watching the musical, like the references to old Hollywood movie musicals are like, those are things that are clearly there for people like me who are giant nerds who grew up on this stuff. And I appreciate that, but I also feel like the Lynn stuff is like, this is kind of like the double-edged sword of getting a movie like this made for the public is that you need to have stuff like this big A-list celebrity attached in order to get the general 
public to watch it in order to get it funded and get it made, but then also it loses some of its authenticity because it's this huge name. There, there's also the, the the fact that he like keeps showing up throughout the movie, where you know the the yeah. one number is kind of a one off, and then uh, you know he he just he, he you know he'll just be like in the background of different scenes. But mm-hmm. I I also just think that what really speaks to the the the, the cult of Lin Manuel that you referred to earlier, and just how it's ballooned over the course of this film's production, is to go back to the fact that Usnavi was not a main character in earlier drafts of this show mm-hmm. that it was going to be about uh, about Nina supposedly and then that as Lynn manuel started acting in the in, in, in the performances as he became the face of the show Usnavi's role got bigger and bigger going into Broadway which won him an award going into Hamilton where he is 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 even more so the face of everything and then going into this movie where Usnavi is to to such a large extent the the main character in this that mm-hmm. he's practically the only person with an arc in the entire movie yeah it it's it's frustrating and it Usnavi is like even in the musical where he's the main character he is much less the main character than he is in the movie and Mm. I think that's kind of to the benefit of the show because like and this is I guess kind of getting into like the I guess the big difference between one of the big differences to me between theater and film is that theater tends to incorporate all of the cast in a way that film doesn't as much and Mm -hmm. theater can do big ensemble casts that have lots of different characters with lots of different plot lines and theater can be a lot more spread out and film tends to be a lot more concentrated on a few main characters and there's other plots going on in the background but they're not as significant as this big main plot do we have any final thoughts on in the heights it's as much as I had criticisms of it, it is by far one of the best movie musicals that's come out recently. And I really loved it as someone, like to me, it's it's a movie musical for people who love musicals. And I really loved it. And, I, and once it comes back with streaming services, I will probably be watching it a bunch more times because there's a bunch of scenes that I really loved like Paciente Gallife, and I will go back and I will watch Paciente Gallife, and I will sob uncontrollably because that scene was so beautiful. And I, I just, I think that the one thing is that Lin-Manuel Miranda was kind of the double-edged sort of this thing from the jump, because if he wasn't the big star that he was, that he is, I don't think of a, mu- a movie like this that's supposed to be about this small Latino community could have gotten made, but yeah. also because he's this big star, it becomes all about him and not about the community. That's the thing, is that he was talking about how, like, how he, you know, how in the in, in the early days he couldn't get it made because he didn't have a big star attached, and 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 Chu paints it as we made Crazy Rich Asians, and then now they let us make movies with that, with, with nobody in them. But, like, Lin Manuel became the star. Like, like he just he just mm-hmm. became an A-lister. And that, that's really the only difference that happened. It's not that it's not that Harvey Weinstein was more willing to take a chance than you know <laughs> than Universal was. It's just that like Lin Manuel himself, maybe without realizing, is the is the J-Lo of this version of the movie. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's a really good tie-in to to our J-Lo discussion at the beginning of this. So I would say that my overall thoughts on the film are 
not dissimilar to my thoughts from Crazy Rich Asians. I probably prefer Crazy Rich mm-hmm. Asians just because I guess I guess I'm more of a comedy person than a musical person in general. But I, you know, I, I don't know. I it, it feels like John M. Chu is generating like a like a representation movie algorithm that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that is gonna yeah. is gonna cause problems. And I don't know. I just think I like I said. I think the opening number is incredible. The Paciencia mm-hmm. Efe number is amazing um there are several things i really like about this movie i don't think that it's going to hold up as a good movie in my mind just because of the like plot and motivation issues that we were getting into and the extent to which again the extent to which the shadow uh lin-manuel casts over the whole thing just you know makes it harder to get behind but i had a good time watching it i'm glad i saw it yeah i guess those are my overall thoughts i was looking into what john m chu is doing next because you know i'm interested to see like what he has in store he's working on a willow series based on the the film with warwick davis there you know he's doing that for disney plus he was going to do the lilo and stitch live action movie for disney uh he he there's a lilo and stitch live action movie there will be he uh he dropped out of it in may of this year because of scheduling conflicts uh but i i that feels like another area where he could make like a you know what another of his his representation movies that uh yeah you know i don't i i I don't want to see that but um i'll probably see whatever it ends up being depends who who they get on it whatever probably won't Mm -hmm. be great but you know um in february of 2021 it was announced that chu would direct the film adaptation of wicked for universal So after all oh, that, no. we come right back around to Wicked for a Universal Picture. <laughs> I will go and I will, I, I mean, I think I will go and I will see the Wicked. But is it, I mean, is it happening this time? <laughs> like, like, Yeah, they keep putting it off and putting it off. And I think they also, I, I don't know whether this is ever confirmed that they wanted Leah Michelle to play Alphaba. That is not happening now. Like yeah, to bring know. Leah Michelle into this project at all is to like kill it and before it even like gets a glimmer of life. I don't think but, so. Like, In like like as early as 2020, they had it, they had a release date set. They said this is coming December 22nd, 2021. And last like like a couple months ago they announced a new director so, like, i like after it, it started in 2008 it started at the same time that they started talking about in the heights and after 13 years it seems like they're no further along than they were in 2008. Yeah, I, I will say Wicked is also, I guess, kind of a musical that I would say would have, I guess, a little bit of a hard time being adapted into a movie because um, I have also seen Wicked. I saw it in middle school with my Nana. And Wicked is like one of those shows that like part of the magic of it is that it's on stage and that you're seeing these beautiful things happen on stage. And to me, it like... I don't need a movie of Wicked because if I need to watch a movie version of this story, I can go watch The Wiz or I can go watch The Wizard of Oz or I can listen to the cast recording of Wicked. But at this point, I just don't know what a, what a movie version of Wicked would look like. We're going off on another tangent here, but um, a little more information. A film adaptation of Wicked had been discussed since 2004. 
So <laughs> not even 2008. 2008 is when is when Universal was was talking about picking it up. But like 2004, man. Uh, by 2012, Universal Studios was reported to be producing with Stephen Daldry as director. Stephen Daldry was still on board as the director until they announced Chew this year. So, like, at nine years, he was he was like, I'm going to do it. He did. Um, has he not been working this whole time? What did he do? I mean, he OK. Yeah, his his last movie was in 2014. <laughs> so he's definitely just been in development hell with Wicked this whole time. <laughs> Universal announced in 2016 that the film would be released in theaters on December 20th, 2019, with Daldry still attached to direct it and the script to be co-written by the musical's creators, Holtzman and Schwartz. In May 2017, Schwartz stated that the film would feature at least two new songs. On August 31st, 2018, Universal put the film on hold due to production scheduling and gave the film adaptation of Cats the release date formerly held by the film. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, on, oh. on, on February 2019, Universal announced a new release date of December 2021. On April 1st, 2020, the film was put on hold once again due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Sing 2 got its release date. Uh, in October of 2020, Stephen Daldry finally mm-hmm. left the project. And then in February of this year, John M. Chu signed on. Stephen Schwartz gave out an update according to what's on stage on July 2nd, 2021, one month and one week ago, that filming will begin later this year in Georgia. <laughs> Okay, so I I guess it's happening. Um, we will see. <laughs> I I am I I do love Wicked, and it is a great musical. Um, but I will say that like I have never been a fan of songs that get added to musicals for the movie. They yeah. tend to not be very good. Like, okay, I love the 2007 version of Hairspray. That's one of my favorite movies of all time. Right. I freaking love that movie. But the movie that they put in, Lady's Choice, that they put in basically just for Zac Efron to sing hotly at the camera, mm-hmm. it is nowhere near as good as the rest of the songs in the movie. But I do think that I should put on a drag performance where I sing Lady's Choice. And I think I should dress yes. up in drags to do it. Yes, love that. I mean, that's the thing though, is, is look at where Universal is now. Cats was a famous bomb. In the Heights, they successfully sold it as not a bomb, but it actually didn't make any money. Um, it, they they might pull they might they might put Wicked on the shelf again for all we know. Like 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 yeah. there, there's really no telling. I mean, I'm just I'm just excited for West Side Story because Rachel Ziegler, my beloved, I love Rachel Ziegler so much. I uh, it honestly looks pretty good. I don't know West Side Story very well either. I it, so I, I'll be going in fresh, but uh, Spielberg. He knows what he's yeah. doing. I, I, I <laughs> he did movie, Ready Player One. Yeah, I, I, I'm excited for the movie. I, I haven't seen the original movie with um, Natalie Wood in years and years, but mm-hmm. it is a really beautiful musical, and I am really excited for Rachel Ziegler as Maria because I've, I've like heard so many clips of her singing, and she just has the voice of such an absolute angel. I will be pretending that Ansel Elgort is not in the movie and I will instead be sitting there the whole time being like Tig Notaro could have replaced Ansel Elgort in this there, movie. 
there are so many movies out there that have just been that got like made trailers, everything, and just got put on a shelf because, you know, someone got called out for being a creep who's in it. And, you know, with 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 West Side Story, with West Side Story, they're like, we can't not put out West Side Story with Steven Spielberg. Yeah. So so they did a trailer where Ansel Elgert's not even in it. <laughs> and then the second one, they were like, eh, here he is. Maybe this guy's here. What do you think? They're like, like they're 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 doing everything they can to avoid mentioning the lead of the movie (laughs) yeah i just i I, even from the jump ansel elgort is not the casting that i would have gone with for tony and i think they should have done the same thing that they did with maria because like rachel ziegler as far as i know before this was a relative unknown and i'm just generally a fan of like casting people who are unknowns but who like have a lot of great potential to be in projects like this because like West Side Story is such like a huge classic musical and I feel like there's such a great opportunity to like you know with Maria and with Tony and like you know Romeo and Juliet has remained one of the great classic love stories for a reason because it's something that like can keep being told again and again and again and I, I think for I think it is a still relevant story because there's always going to be stories of people who love each other despite being from like different circumstances. And I think it's always an interesting story to tell. And I'm just I, I'm always excited from any movie musical that's coming out, but I am I am not going to be watching, however, the Camilla Cabello version of Cinderella because there's oh. no fucking way that that is going to be good. I I can't. I cannot. I'll watch be that. watching it. All right. <laughs> oh no! I will watch my black and white DVD of the Julie Andrews version, and I will weep about how beautiful Julie Andrews is. The Camila Cabello version, I that could have been another breaking news thing up top, maybe that the Camila Cabello version is a jukebox musical that they do. <laughs> wait, they're not doing wait, it's not okay. Wait, hold it's on. It's not this Disney. Used, wait, they're not doing the actual Cinderella songs. They're they're no, doing not, like it, no, pop it's, songs. Because it's not Disney, it's it's Amazon. So they're just they're just doing they're doing Queen, they're doing like like existing pop songs for and original songs for a few of them. <laughs> That's all they got. Okay, you know what? You know what? I, I can actually make do with this though, because it at least this means I don't have to listen to Camilla Cabello ruin all of the songs from Cinderella that I love so much. Oh man, that that could be that could be a great episode of this show or of any show talking about the Camilla Cabello film Cinderella. But we have been talking about <laughs> In the Heights. I probably don't love it overall you like it i am i am a i am a relatively i i would say that i like it in the sense that it is one of the better movie musicals that has come out Mm. in recent years maybe so i mean out of the like big like based on a broadway show definitely yeah definitely but uh thank y'all so much for listening simone thank you for coming on short notice we love to have you you've been an excellent guest you've given us lots of material and uh potentially too much definitely potentially too, too much. much this is probably two and a half hours of uh of stuff to, <laughs> of stuff to edit. but we love it we had a great time thanks again for listening see you next week
disagree. I disagree, Gary. I disagree, Gary.